Romans 13, we are, we are making progress. We're gonna be done with this book by summer. <laughs> and I'm only mostly kidding. I think, I think we'll finish up Romans around May, which seems like it's really far off, but there's a lot between here and the end of the book. So there's much to do and well, plenty of time to do it in because we're just gonna keep doing this till Jesus comes back. So it'll be fine. So you know how you're supposed to live. That started in chapter 12. Regardless of the world around you, regardless of who's in charge or who thinks they're in charge of the world around you, that's the beginning of chapter 13. Now, we get the why because we've been going over it, adding you know the why as we answer some of these questions and as Paul explains this, but what has Paul not done? Paul has not directly given you the why you live like that in light of what the government does and who the government is. So guess what he's gonna do next? He's gonna mention it, so guess what we're gonna do? We're gonna go over it because that's the next section and that's how this works and we make sure we don't skip anything. So a reminder of your state of mind in the world, a reminder of your goals in the world, that is the second half of chapter 13. Let's dive in, sound fun? All right. This is gonna be so easy and so complicated all at the same time. These are my favorite Sundays. Verse eight, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. This is your duh of the day because Paul does not pull this out of thin air. He can sit there and say, well, I'm telling you this because Jesus told me this. Romans, John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why does Jesus give that as the new commandment for his people? Because that's the summation of all the commandments that God has ever given his people. And that applies regardless of who the government is, regardless of what the laws are, because it's not an external focus, it's what? It's an internal on the heart and the motivation of the individual. Because remember what else? Jesus isn't teaching in a vacuum. So you can go all the way back to things like Leviticus 19. You know, it's a great Sunday when you get a Leviticus reference, right? You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. Always catch that. Just because you point out that someone does something wrong doesn't mean you dislike them or you hate them. So hang on. It's almost like that's such a needed reminder in the world today because the world, you know, the world would never look at you when you called sin a sin and say, well, you just hate people, don't you? They, they would never attach something like, you know, phobic to the end of every ideology in the planet Earth, would they? they? They would never, ever do something like that. No, Leviticus 19 tells you what? Don't hate your neighbor. Reprove him, but don't hate him. There's a difference between those two things. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, this is where something very important has got to be said. So coming around the mountain. Jesus being God doesn't have the problem that I have, which is every once in a while I have to be reminded of the things that I said because I wasn't always there when I said them. You know, you ever have that where you say that and you go, do you know you said? Oh, did I say it like that? My bad. See, God doesn't have that problem because he's perfect and he remembers and he's actually consistent. So when he says it, he remembers it. Now, I put the cart before the horse because I assumed something in the beginning of this. Jesus being God. This is where Trinitarian theology is so vital to understanding your Bible. When you get to... This is why the proofs that Jesus is doing in the New Testament are important. By commanding creation, by commanding the demons, by being in charge of illness and death, 
by being approved by God, you know, the voice out of heaven, this is my beloved son. What is Jesus doing? He is proving the reality of who he is, that he is God incarnate, that he is God in flesh. Why is that so important? Because when you go back to the Old Testament, it's not like you have, well, Jesus is doing this stuff in the New Testament, and then there was God the Father, and he was doing that stuff in the Old Testament. No, there's God doing stuff. So when God gives the commands that he gives in Leviticus, it's not like Jesus is over in the corner going, no, 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 I can't hear you. It's not my turn yet. It's not my testament. I don't do this. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. God was there when he said it. He knows what he said, which is why the teaching is consistent from beginning to end. It's one of the reasons why I like to use Old Testament quotes as much as possible, because it points out the consistency between what's being taught by Christ and the apostles and how it's built upon what was taught by Christ even in the Old Testament. So what gets, what, what you get, which pick people, English, yeah, I warned you, don't count on the fact that I'm going to say words today. We get the obvious ones that get pointed out if you ever do any study on this where like, you know, God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Well, well, how does God walk? Well, that's gotta be Jesus. And then uh, God is standing with Abram or Abraham overlooking the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah is. Well, how does God stand there? Well, that's gotta be Jesus. And you see all of these, but what also gets lost is that the mind of God is not divided. So when God makes the promise of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, Jesus is there making that promise. When God promises offspring to Abraham, that is Jesus being aware of the promise. When God commands Joshua to wipe out the Canaanites as a judgment on their sin, that is Jesus making that command. So all of that has to go together and be viewed in totality. That's important for stuff like this. So all of that for this. As Paul in Romans is building on what Jesus taught in the New Testament, he's building on what God has been teaching the people from the very beginning. It's not like there's some brand new thing that they've never seen before and now they have to figure out how to apply it. This is how the application has always gone, which is why you see Jesus giving the warnings and the commendations. So the condemnations and the commendations that he's giving in the New Testament, things like Matthew 20. 22. Teacher, someone coming to Jesus, what is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And by the way, New Testament phraseology. You know, you know what I mean when I say idiomatic expressions? There are just some things that you say that you get. Like if your teenager walks up to you, well, not now, but like when you were a teenager and walked up to your parents and said, that's really cool. Like that didn't mean they just pulled it out of the refrigerator. You knew that, they knew that, kids today have their own and I'm not even getting into that. Whenever you see in the New Testament where they talk about the law and the prophets, that doesn't mean like Leviticus and Isaiah. That's shorthand for saying the Bible. Because the law wasn't just Leviticus. It was the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So it's the entirety of Moses. The prophets, in a lot of instances, is everything else. It's the prophetic book. So the four major prophets plus lamentation plus your 12 minor prophets plus the historical books would be counted by a lot of people in the prophets because they're recording the times that the prophets lived in as well as the wisdom books because all wisdom comes from who? God. Therefore, the wisdom would be a prophetic book as well. So when you see someone say the law and the prophets, it's a shorthand of saying the Bible. And sometimes it'll be expanded to say the law, the prophets, 
and the writings, just to make sure you got everything covered. So when Jesus is telling you that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself is the summation of the law and the prophets, he's telling you that's the summation of what God has been trying to get across to his people since the garden. The problem we have is sin getting in the way, and I'm going to pause right there because we're going to come back to this idea because Paul comes back to the idea. So instead of giving you all at one time, we're going to put a pause because Paul does and then come back to it. So verse 9, keep all that in your mind. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul stands in line of the entirety of scripture and then makes sure that you understand it rightly by giving you what the summation is summarizing. So we've done this before, but this makes really good sense. So look at this part of, this is the partial list of your 10 commandments, right? What would it look like to love your neighbor. Well, for starters, don't try to sleep with his wife. Don't kill him. Don't take his stuff. Don't even want to take his stuff. And anything else, though, like don't lie to him. Don't try to lead him into idolatry. Don't try to lead him into worshiping false gods. Don't try to get him to blaspheme the name of God. These would be ways that you would love your neighbor. These commandments are summaries of how you are supposed to live in the world. And if you want to summarize that even further, you just say, love people, do them no wrong because that's how God has commanded you. In other words, things like 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag and it is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Just to come back to that idea about the modern world, that um, that part about love does not rejoice in unrighteousness is a piggyback on what we've been covering going all the way back to Romans 12. This is one of the reasons why you evaluate in the world the way that you do. Because if you don't, the world will bring you unrighteousness and go, isn't this awesome? And because you're not thinking and it makes them so happy, you say what? Well, I want to be nice to them and I want to love them and they seem really, really happy about this, so what should I do? I should be really, really happy about this. No, because love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It sees sin and says what? Sin, wicked, evil, abomination, cast it away, kill it with fire, run far from it. As far as the east is from the west, whatever other biblical definition you want to give it, we do not rejoice in it because it is destruction and it is corruption and it is dishonoring to you and it is dishonoring to God. And instead, love wants what? What is actually good for you? What's the primary good for you in all of reality? You get one word. God. So the thing that drives you away from God, by definition, then, can't be good, and my approval of it cannot be loving. I know this is complicated for the world because the world wants to define everything by whose standard. I have a standard, you get it's, it's like that bad Oprah, I get a standard, and you get a standard, and he gets a standard. We all have our own little standard. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, this is the difference between standing on my truth and the truth, because I don't get my own truth. We only have one objective reality, and we are stuck living in it. I've given you that example before. Like, you don't get to run outside when it's 25 degrees on Tuesday night and be like, it's bathing suit weather. I mean, unless you like frostbite on your toes and fingers. But you should probably do what when it's 25 and snowing? Yeah, put on a jacket when you go outside. You don't get to be like, no, 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 we are in Daytona, and it's July. 
Nuh-uh. Reality is undefeated, and God is undefeated because he is the author of reality. So, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. We're going to pause real quick. I know there's two parts to this, but we're going to get there. So, Paul wants to drive home a point that it's not just on the passive side. I want to make sure you understand this, because this is true. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. But always remember, you have a passive obedience and you have an active obedience. So yes, be obedient passively, but also be obedient actively. Do not just sit there and go, well, look, look, I didn't harm anybody, I didn't do anything wrong. I get that. But is that the sole definition of love? Not the way Paul has been defining it from the beginning of chapter 12. So just, just remember that as we go forward. So love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So that's a lot, believe it or not. And if you're just like skimming through real quick, you just see that little sentence, throw it away and be like, we're done here. But this is the why and the how of how Jesus's teaching is realized in his people. So rewind in your mind, or if you want to try to flip along with me, I don't recommend that. That's why I, I haven't mentioned this in a while, better mention again, just because I know how you people look at your bulletins. Um, all the Bible references that I read that aren't on the screen for the one we're preaching from are in your bulletin, so you can check them later. That way you don't have to try to flip along with me or like do the three-click thing on your phone app, however you do that. So Matthew 5. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. See, by your loving Christ, because of what he has done for his people. So remember, Romans 12 through the end of the book is built upon the understanding of Romans 1 through 11. So you know what that means I have to do right now, right? Time out, quick mini recap time. So all people are lost in sin, even Israel, even though they have the law. That's all people because of not just what they do, but how they think and how they live in this world. But God has graciously saved them by grace through faith in the work of Christ. That's basically Romans like four and five. And that work should change how they live in the world. That's Romans six. It doesn't change them the, the way that they would always like. That's Romans seven. But even if they are not changed the way that they would like, they still rejoice in the fact that God has saved them. That's Romans eight. Why can they rejoice in that? Because Romans nine, 10 and 11 tells you that God rules and reigns, knows who his people are and is redeeming them day by day. Make sense? So because of all of that, you are, go back to Romans 6, supposed to be different in the world. Why? Because you are now in Christ. As you are now in Christ living differently in the world, you are living out the fulfillment of the law. Because one, remember, great exchange theology. So it's literally what we call it. We, we have such fun technical terms in the world of theology. Yeah, every once in a while we, we come up with fun things and we call it, it's the hypostatic union, which is really just the smushing of Greek words together. Or trinity, which is a completely made up word. It's a tri-unity, which makes logically no sense, but it explains what we're trying to explain. But then there's like, we have the great exchange. <laughs> and you're like, we couldn't come up with anything better than great exchange, but it, it does work. So what happens? You, sinful, completely, Jesus, righteous, completely. What happens? 
Both of those things are exchanged. So Christ takes your guilt. Your guilt is imputed to Christ upon the cross. He bears the, bears the guilt, pays the penalty for your sin. But his righteousness is given to you so that as you stand before God, as you stand in Christ, you do not stand hoping to be clean. You stand righteous because you stand in Christ. It's, it's like having the best, um, the best get into the club free. It's like you walk up to the bouncer, which in every joke is, is Peter at the gates, right? You walk up to the bouncer and be like, hey, I want to get in. And he's like, well, why should you get in? Like, I'm with him. That's, that's your great, like, I, I know the band. <laughs> but in this case, you actually do know the band and you actually are with him. And not only that, Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, that one's mine. He's in. That's, that's the exchange. You are in on Christ's righteousness. That's covered. That's your great exchange. That righteous exchange that giving, imputing of Christ's righteousness to you. And I keep using that technical term because it's not, this was, a, this was the great, if you ever want to know what one of the fun theological arguments of the Reformation was, it was the difference over the word imputed and infused. So if you, when you come into medieval theology, what you end up having is an infusion of righteousness. So stop me if this sounds familiar for any of you who grew up Roman Catholic, or in a strange sense, sometimes Eastern Orthodox. So, you go to church, priests pronounce the blessing, that is an infusion of righteousness. You go and partake of communion, that's an infusion of righteousness. You go to confession and the priest absolves you of your sin, that is an infusion of righteousness. The problem is, guess what it does? Well, you guys know this, so like, how many of you ever bought those little water bottles where you put like the strawberries in the little thing in the middle and then you stick it in your water, it's like that your water tastes like strawberries? You ever, what's the problem with those? How long does that work? How many refills do you get before you're like, this doesn't taste like strawberries anymore. Now I'm just drinking water and it's Rockford water and this is terrible. <laughs> yeah, how long is that? This is the problem with an infusion. It doesn't last. This was part of the problem that as people read their Bible went, that's not what Jesus talks about. Jesus doesn't talk about like you got a little bit of saved, like we sprinkled a little salvation on you. Like, like that dude who does the salt videos, you know, you like just sprinkle a little salvation on the people and okay, they're good for a little while. What, they came, they need more? Fine, here. Okay, fine. Here, extra. You know, we have these jokes in Protestantism. It's like when we talk about baptizing people, that we got to do it twice, make sure it takes. Yeah, same idea. That's not how your Bible describes it. Your Bible describes it as what? That Christ saves you and you're in. Like, we don't have to sprinkle anything additional. We're not redoing anything. You're, you're in. That's not an infusion. That is an imputation. It is granted. It is yours. It cannot be stolen. It cannot be lost. It cannot be taken away. It has been given to you. That's what your Bible is talking about. That's what one of the big arguments of the Reformation was all about. Now, this is why Paul is being so serious about how he hammers this point and why he's been on this since Romans 12 and why we have as well. Christ is not undoing the law. He is fulfilling it in your changed nature, in your sanctification. This is why the Holy Spirit guiding you and steering you and bettering you day by day in Christ's likeness is of such importance. Is This is the demonstration of, one, the accomplished work that Christ has done. Two, of the living out of the commandments as they have been summarized from the very beginning. So how could you summarize all of God's commands? Loving God and loving his people. What does that then look like? Well, this is your Romans 12. You renew your mind so that you may do what? Go out into the world and demonstrate what the will of God is, to be pleasing in his sight, living your life as an offering, as a sacrifice daily. What does that look like? It looks like serving God, loving him, and loving my neighbor. Paul is just finally getting around to the second half of that. He's doing this after pointing out 
that while you are in subjection to government, government is also in subjection to who? God. Meaning there's no higher standard. There's God, and then there's everybody else. So your love of neighbor is defined not by a worldly standard, but by an eternal heavenly standard. You have an obedience to God first and foremost and everything else. Let me repeat that. You have an obedience to God first and foremost and everything else comes after that. All of it, not some of it. So if anything in this world is going, hey, you know what we should do? We should blaspheme God's name and serve other gods and engage in idolatry. You know, Kill it with fire, get it away, throw things, run screening from the room, however you want to define that, so that you what? Are worshiping and serving God first and foremost. This is the fulfillment of the law, the righteous living. So things like 1 Thessalonians 4. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And always, okay, don't veer the car into the ditch. So always remember, there's ditches on both sides of the roads whenever we talk about sanctification, all right? Sanctification is the process by which you grow in Christ-likeness each and every day. What's one ditch? One ditch is what we call antinomianism. You're being sanctified. God is cleansing you. There is no law. We do whatever we want. That's antinomianism. It's against the law. You drive off that ditch. You live however. You're a libertine. This is why Romans 6 is in your Bible. Shall, Shall we continue on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. That's one ditch. We avoid that one. The other ditch, though, is I need rules. I need laws. I need lists. I need to have my checklist run down. You run into the ditch of legalism. I do this. I do this. I'm being sanctified. I don't do this. I don't do this. I'm not being sanctified. Problem. That list doesn't work either. Same problem. It's a ditch. You rest where? In Christ's righteousness, in Christ's fulfillment, which means, again, some of this is going to be different for individuals, depending on who you are, where you are, who you have to deal with, what your life situation is, how all of these things come together. So again, for some of you, loving your neighbor is going to look like I'm walking away from this argument. I can't do this. I can't go around the mountain again. We've had the argument. You're mad at me. You hate me. You've talked about it. You know where I am. You know where you are. And we're just not doing this. For some of you, loving your neighbor is I cannot stand here and watch you do this. I guess what we're going to do. We're going around the mountain another time. We are fighting this fight again. This is the, the, the fulfillment of Proverbs, right? Answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Same idea. Sometimes you got to have the fight. Sometimes you don't got to have the fight. Just depends on where you are and how you can answer before God. That's the first thing. The second part is, this is only possible. Only possible in Christ. Sanctification is not possible outside of Christ. We've talked about this before. Why does the sinner not recognize his sin? Because he doesn't care. Why is he not seeking after the righteousness that comes from God? Because he doesn't care. This is how you get, these are the examples you get in your Old Testament. So you get things like Saul, right? King in Israel, going to go lead the people into battle until the big tall Goliath guy comes out and now I'm scared and hiding in my tent. Like, dude, this is why you're king. Go, Go do some kingly stuff. You know, honor, valor, you know, all that good stuff. Go, go, go do that. No, never mind. And how you can tell, claim to be obedient while you're being disobedient. That was with the benefit of God's correction and with the benefit of God's spirit. When the spirit of God leaves him, it's like, hey, you know that guy I like that, you know, kills all my enemies for me and plays really sweet music that calms me down? I'm going to chuck this spear at him really hard and see what happens. I mean, does that make sense? No. 
because the depraved mind doesn't make any sense because it can't rationalize and think through things rightly because what does it care about? Itself. And what does it want? Whatever it wants. When? In that moment. So what does it serve? Joked about this before. This was my always, always my laugh um, growing up in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s that we had to learn. I still can't. To, bothers me to this day. But had to learn Whitney Houston's um, Power of Love for my kindergarten graduation. I've told you this before. I won't sing it again. It's, yeah, it's bad. But it's an entire anthem to what? Self-actualization. Because the greatest love of all is inside of me. I am my own best love. Last time I checked, I was in the center of the universe. But what does the modern world want to convince you of? That you are. Why? Because that's all it sees. It can't see beyond itself in the fog of sin and in the drifting away into whatever soup of sin it's gone off into. Scripture, sanctification pulls you back and says, no, 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 you're anchored to God. You have a standard. You know what it is now. Live your life knowing that you are anchored and thinking through what the things that come to you, how do they fall onto the scale of righteous and sinful and how do you react to them and how do you glorify God in this? And that again is only possible because it is God who has placed that anchor. Things like um, Isaiah 54. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear. And from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work. And I have created the destroyer for ruin. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment will you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. In other words, as you persevere, whose kingdom will win? God's. Because they will form their weapons, and they will assail God, and they will what? Be defeated. Now again, that does not always mean in the here and now, but it does mean that as you are focused upon God, as you are focused on worshiping and living your life as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, you are focused on the kingdom that he is building and an eternity that he is making, not in the here and now. The mistake we make is we get bogged down into the here and now because it's like, ah, this is miserable and I don't like this and I don't know what to do. Stop. Where are you focused? What are you thinking about? What's the tizzy? Well, yeah, we, the, the way we phrase it in my house, because we all do this, is, is the death spiral. Is you get one little thing that you start thinking about that's wrong, and then you start worried about the next thing, and you make one bad decision and another bad decision. I, I, I understand this really well because it, you see it in sports, and I've played enough of them and coached enough of them. So you used to have this kid that would do this at shortstop. Drove me nuts. He was a great athlete, but he's a sophomore, and every once in a while, you know, sophomores do sophomore things. There was a reason why the word means a wise fool. <laughs> so you'd hit, the ball would be hit at him, and he'd bounce off his glove and hit him in the chest. Well, dude, stop. It's the other team's catcher. He weighs 285 pounds. He can barely run. Take your time. Do what? Pick up the ball, throw it across the infield. But he panics and goes to pick the ball up. And he doesn't pick it up cleanly, so he drops it. But now he took a step, and now he's going to go back and get the ball again. Now he picks it up, and now he goes to throw, and he doesn't have a good grip on it. So what does he do? He throws it anyway. And now where does it go? I don't know. Somewhere up the right field line. And now dude who can't run is standing on second base, and it's like, what just happened? And he's over there mad at himself, and I'm like, dude... 
See, this is what we do in the world because this is how the world is designed to function is it just throws things at you. You gotta be outraged about this and you gotta be worried about this. You gotta be worried about this. And what about, what about this thing? And you're just like, I don't know. what. Stop. How do I honor God? How do I serve him? How do I evaluate these things one at a time and live my life as a sacrifice? This is what I do day in and day out. And again, I'm never going to do it the way that I want to, Romans 7. Thanks be to God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. That despite myself, despite the thoughts, despite the failures, despite the spiraling, I know that at the end of this, he has me. That's the hope there. That's the hope from Isaiah 54, is that at the end of all things, there is God and his kingdom and his accomplishment, and the rest of this will be dealt with. Either the grace poured out by the work of Christ or the judgment unironically poured out by the work of Christ. And it will be accomplished in his good time, in his good kingdom. Verse 11. Do this, knowing the time, so that this is the stuff that he's just told you to do. Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. There are times in life I wish I had a DeLorean. You know, with the little flux capacitor, which, oh, by the way, you want a good laugh for all of you 80s people? Um, go to, um, not, not right now, obviously, but mark this down for later. Go to um, O'Reilly Auto Parts website and search um, 121G. Just write that down for later. If you're an 80s person like I am, you'll just get a kick out of their website. So enjoy. It's nothing bad. You're fine. <laughs> now, why do, I want, why do I want my DeLorean to go back in time? Because I would love to be able to look at Paul and be like, you know, it's been 2,000 years. Because you know what he'd say? Salvation's closer now than when we first believed. And you know what it is now? It's closer now. Because what's the mindset? What's the focus? Where's the hope? It's not, a, oh, dude, why aren't you here yet? What are you waiting for? Have you seen what these people are doing? It's, it's coming. The kingdom is good. You have not forsaken your people. You have not lost your salvation. You have not abandoned your kingdom. And it's closer now than it was five minutes ago. And it'll be closer tomorrow than it is today. And again, Paul's not alone in this idea. Things like 2 Peter 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. See, stop me if you've ever lived in a world like this. And they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at, the pres at that time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction for, um, for judgment and destruction of ungodly men but do not let this one fact escape your notice that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward those not with, I'm sorry, patient toward you not wishing for any of those but for all to perish but for all to come to repentance if I could read we would be in such better shape so in light of that that we work on God's timeline, that we live looking forward. What do you do? What, what's the therefore after that? Well, it's the rest of what Peter talks about. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to, are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So in light of that, what should you do? 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. One of these days on a Sunday, on, on Sunday mornings, we're going to get and eventually get to the book of Revelation because we did it on Wednesday during Bible study and I had fun if nobody else had fun. And I keep telling you that's all that matters. But one of the recurring themes, I got to wait just long enough for all the Wednesday people to forget about what we went through so that I can do it again on Sunday. And then, you know, that way, I, that way they're not just sitting there like, we already did this. Okay. <laughs> Makes my life a little bit easier. <laughs> but one of the recurring themes was you see the letters to those churches in Revelation. So the letters to the churches in chapters two and three of Revelation. And you keep seeing that repeated theme that there's coming difficulty and there's coming tribulation for them. But what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to repent. And trust in God. They're supposed to trust that Christ has them. So again, the message of the prophets that he will redeem them in the midst of the judgment, in the midst of that tribulation. And then when you read the rest of the book, you start seeing this kind of repeated theme over and over and over again, which is God judging sin, but his saints are gathered around the throne. That God is judging and destroying, but there's still a coming kingdom and his people are secure. Again, he's saving them in the midst of his judgment and condemnation. You always have these things going on. And this is what Paul would have you to know from Romans. This is what Peter would have you know from 2 Peter, is that you live in a world hoping for what God is going to do, hoping for the kingdom that is to come. But in the meantime, there's those mocking mockers with their mockery. <laughs> you know, I just, I just love that they don't even come up with a new word. They're just like, no, we're going with mocking. We've decided and that's what it is. And they make fun of you and they have the same joke over and over and it's not even funny anymore. Well, now what? Well, it's closer now than it was when they started with their jokes. It's closer now than before they started in their rebellion. What do you do? You point out the hypocrisy. You point out the sin. You proclaim Christ and his goodness because that's the anchor that holds you. And you rest knowing that the kingdom is coming, that it is good, and that your position is secure in it because you're in Christ. This is, this is why this stuff matters so much. See, this is, this is the great question that Christians have as they live in the world is because we look at ourselves and we see our Romans 7 self and, you know, why do I, the thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I do. And it's like, Nyeh! and I don't like that guy, but then that guy is the guy in the mirror and I'm stuck with him. And so what do I deal with him? And we, we remember that part. And then we forget the Romans 8 part is the same guy, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because of that, choking on my own words again, because of that, we do a really good job of just killing ourselves daily and forgetting the reality. So what we want then is give me something, give me a proof, give me what's the thing that I can hang my hat on so that I know 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 that God's got me. And we go, well, I really like this song, but then what happens when we don't play that song enough at church? Now I'm not happy anymore, and you don't play that song enough, and I gotta go find somebody. Mm, see, that's the wrong place to go. Well, well, there was that time they held me under the water, and they didn't even have to do it multiple times because it took the first time, so that must be it, right? No, no, that's not it either. I've, I've, I've actually had people in their like 60s and 70s who go, I know that I'm saved because I know what verse of just as I am they were playing when I walked the aisle when I was nine years old, and I'm like, oh. I got work to do with this one, sorry. <laughs> you do know that's like the, the official Baptist revival song. And I have actually, I have been stuck, and I'm gonna use that word, stuck in a revival in the choir, singing just as I am for the eighth time through. 
in those robes in North Carolina in August, and the air conditioner is never working good enough when you're in those choir robes. Terry, Terry's been in a choir robe. They are this thick, and they are made out of the most artificial material on planet Earth. Like, you weigh 25 extra pounds when it's on, and then you sweat in it, and you weigh 45 extra pounds. And standing if one more person gets out of that pew, I'm going to throw this hymnal at them. And then you're a bad person because you're like, that's the wrong attitude to have right now, and it's yet the one that I have because I don't like this song anymore and I don't want to sing it. See, that's not a proof of anything. That's a song. Look, is that a start? Sure. Can it be a good start? Absolutely. Whether you like the song, whether you hated the song, whether you like singing it, whether the choir robe was miserable, that can be a great start. But what's the proof? How do I know? This is the stuff. What am I looking for? What am I hoping in? How do I live in the world? Am I an actual offering? Am I living my life as a sacrifice? Do I actually love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do I love my neighbor? And what does that look like? Again, it looks like actually trying to not wrong them and trying to live righteously and point out the graciousness of God. And it looks like trying to actually proclaim his truth and his mercy in this world. And it looks like trying to forsake sin and cast it away. This is what the proof of Christianity looks like. And it's not neat and it's not clean and it's not like, okay, today I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and strength. I did not engage in idolatry and I am good. So check. I did not sleep with my neighbor's wife on this side, so I loved my neighbor as myself. I'm a good person, and you are not. Ha ha. That's not what any of this looks like. It looks like examining who I am and what I am daily, and remembering that, yes, Romans 7 me exists, but Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15 me is there because of what Christ has done, and because of the eternity in which he holds me from Romans 8, 9, 10 and 11. I warned you we were going to go back a lot, and this is why. Because you need the knowledge of all of this, not just so you can understand the crazy ramblings that I'm giving you now, so that you can understand you in the mirror on a random Tuesday when the death spiral hits. That's when these things matter, so that you can think through rightly, so that when you're not thinking through these things and the Holy Spirit goes, hey, what you doing? And why you doing that? You can go, I know. And I know that I know, and you know that I know that I know, and we're going to work on that because you now have the tools in your toolbox to actually attack it. Verse 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. See, this is the looking forward. This is what it looks like to look forward throughout the years. Whether you're 8 or 80 or somewhere in between or even beyond. That's what it was. Oh, which one was that? I forget what it was, but it's something at Christmas time. And Cameron's not in here right now because she's got to get stuff for lunch. But, oh, that's right. It's the Christmas song. That's where it comes from. You get a Merry Christmas from kids from 1 to 92. So after 93, you don't get Christmas anymore? (laughs) These are the questions that I ask when the songs are on the radio. Like, if you're 97, be like, no, you don't have to say Merry Christmas to Grandma. She's too old for that. (laughs) So it apparently happens when you turn 93. That's that's what Nat King Cole taught us, right? Random rules of life. (laughs) If you're over 93, you still get a Merry Christmas. There you go. (laughs) No, this is what... This is the why, because you're looking forward, regardless of who you are, where you are, how old you are, or what you're able or unable to do any longer, you live looking forward. How? Laying aside the deeds of darkness and putting on the armor of light. Why? 
because that's how you live as a sacrifice. That's how you live as an offering. That's how you evaluate the things in the world. And again, I've told you this before. I will keep reminding you this. If you want the Cliff Notes version of Romans, read Ephesians. Ephesians, things like Ephesians 5. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. See, that's a summary of part of Romans 12 and part of Romans 13 and Ephesians 6. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Why would I care about such a thing? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Notice, why do you care about knowing where your battle is? Because notice what Paul reminds you of. Just like Jesus with his teaching during his earthly ministry. Just like the Old Testament, not aiming for your obedience of action, but aiming for your obedience of heart. Trying to get your eyes off of you, off of your world, and onto a kingdom that is to come. Your battle isn't here. You don't look at the things of the world and be like, that person right there. You see that person right there engaged in that sin? There's the enemy. That's what it looks like. No. The problem is the heart. The problem is the sin. The problem is the wicked schemes of Satan. The problem is the evil behind it. That's where the battle is. So even in your condemnation of sin, even in your proclamation of righteousness, it's not about, well, we have to make this world a better place for Christianity. You know who's going to accomplish that? God. With the fire from 2 Peter 3 and then the new heavens and the new earth from the end of Revelation. That's who accomplishes that. You honor God even in your war, knowing that it is God who wins. It is God who wars, and it is God who overcomes. That's why your weapons, again, you know this one. This is the easy one, right? What's the only offensive weapon you get in the armor of God? You get the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That means you get to get a really big, heavy Bible and whack them with it, right? If only, wouldn't that be, now you know why I tell you when in doubt. Get a bigger Bible. That's why everybody's grandma, if you ever had that, if you ever had a little Southern grandma, that's why she had that big family Bible on the table off. You know, she wrote down everybody's birthday and when they got married. That was because when your parents misbehaved, stop it. (laughs) Yes, grandma. That's why that was there. That's how it works. (laughs) Sorry. But why is that your weapon? Because it's a reminder. When When you're teaching from the word, when you're proclaiming the word, who are you proclaiming? Christ. The end of your Bible is who? You get to the end of the Bible, the answer should be Jesus. So as you're explaining the word of God, you're explaining Christ. Well, when you're explaining Christ, you're explaining what? You, the sinner, him, the savior, dying, overcoming, creating righteousness. You're explaining the gospel message from beginning to end. This is the totality of how it works. So you're being reminded that as you go into the spiritual battle, you go in there with a weapon that is Jesus. And that's the only weapon you have. It's the only weapon you need. Now, just in case... You have managed to make it all the way to the end of chapter 13 of Romans, and you are confused about which deeds might go into which column. Paul helps you out a little. So, verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. That's a pretty good list on the things that you don't want to be engaged in. You know what the frightening part about your New Testament is? That's not the whole list. 
Like that's that's the Cliff Notes version of the list. So you get things like um, Galatians five. And by the way, the fact that that's that's not even the whole list that should be like a little terrifying to people. But Galatians five: the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. <laughs> even the long list is like. And wait, there's more of these, which of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And again, Paul goes on to give you that same reminder, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, that's part of the really, 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 really bad news. Verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Here's where this becomes important. Because we wish to avoid that stuff, we seek what? His kingdom and his righteousness. How? By the beginning of Romans, remembering what? That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were lost but Christ has died for us and he has raised us up with him and he is strengthening us and he is redeeming us and he is sanctifying us so that our focus is now different so that the Galatians 5 list that I read goes on to the next verse. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. Did you notice the difference by the way? Do you notice how the list of the bad things is like stuff that you do? But the list of the good things are the things that you are. It's not just stuff that you do. It's actually a change of heart, not just a change in how you live in the world. This is consistent with the entirety of Scripture. What are we interested in? Stop doing that. No, no, stop doing that and honor Christ. Repent and trust in him so that he can redeem you, so that the Spirit can strengthen you, so that you can be sanctified, so that your place in the kingdom is secure, because this is the victory that God has granted. And reminder that I always want to make sure I leave you with, that even that list from things like Corinthians is not always the end. So if you continue on from Corinthians, you get, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. See, that's why remembering where the battle is is so important. It's not just like, oh, look, there's the behavior, there's the problem, we must undo that and get them to stop doing that thing. Good luck with that. Have you ever really, really wanted something? <laughs> and someone goes, you can't have it. Well, who are you to tell me what I can't have? I'm going to do what now? I'm going to work extra hard so that I can. You know, we coaches do that to players sometimes just to motivate them. Like, no, no, you can't start. Watch me. <laughs> this is the mindset you get from the world. Such were some of you. But the spirit has changed. But Christ is redeemed. But God will be glorified because the battle is not in the behavior. The battle is in the heart and in the renewing of the mind so that the will of God will be proved because that's what he changes, because that's how he changes his people. And again, how is all of this possible? John 3, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That's how. 
Not because, no, by the power of my will and sheer force of my effort, I will overcome and do good things. No, God has changed me. God has redeemed me. Such were some of me. Such were some of us. But we have been washed. We've been sanctified. And our place in the kingdom is secure because God will glorify his people because he has not lost them and he has not forgotten them. Because this is what he does, Titus 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And how does, what does that look like? It looks like his people being redeemed by his grace, trusting in his accomplishment, hoping for his kingdom, living their lives as an offering unto him because he has loved them, because they love him. It looks like what Romans 12 has described. This is why you have to have that full understanding in order to make sense of this application. You can't just look and be like, you need to honor God. I can't. I can't. How? Die to self. Trust in Christ. By grace, through faith, be reborn, be transformed. And the word of God, which will dwell within, within you, will transform you day by day. That's the hope. That's the sanctification that we live in. That's what we are day by day because of God and all of his grace and mercy. Let's pray.